Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate and of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Hello everyone. That was a clip of Franklin Roosevelt's famous A Date Which Will Live in Infamy speech. After the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, which brought the United States into World War II. But how did they get there? What's the deeper history? Stretching back not to Franklin, but Theodore Roosevelt's administration that set up this collision course. That's what I'm going to look at in this episode. But before we get there, there's some other important history to cover. Washington is always busy when a new president is made. It was coaches and teams then. Automobiles hadn't yet been given the official recognition. Prosperity was the issue then, too. McKinley served his country well and died a martyr, the third president to be assassinated. On September 6, 1901, the 25th president of the United States, William McKinley, was shot in Buffalo, New York. He died eight days later. Vice President Theodore Roosevelt, perhaps the major driving force behind the United States' imperial expansion, then became president. McKinley's was the third assassination of a president inside 40 years. Theories about Franklin Delano Roosevelt aside, there's only been one successful attempt in the 120 years since. His death led to the Secret Service, up until then an agency that investigated counterfeiting, taking on the role of protecting the president. McKinley's assassin was a Leon Shalgosh, an anarchist who in his last words declared, I killed the president because he was an enemy of the good people, the good working people. The period of roughly 1870 to 1920 saw a considerable amount of anarchist violence, with bombings across Europe and the United States, and assassinations of monarchs and government officials. Chagos was particularly inspired by the then recent killing of King Umberto I of Italy. In some ways, anarchists were the radical Islamists of their day, and the war on their terror contained all the same complexity of its modern incarnation. Anarchist ideology was far more threatening to the ruling class than a few bombs and assassinations, with hundreds of thousands subscribing to anarchist publications. After McKinley's assassination, Theodore Roosevelt declared, When compared to the suppression of anarchy, every other question sinks into insignificance. Movements were heavily infiltrated with agent provocateurs, leading groups in the direction of violence. Indeed, Chalgosh himself had raised sufficient suspicion for a warning pertaining to him to be published in the Free Society newspaper. It stated that, His demeanour is of the usual sort, 
pretending to be greatly interested in the cause, asking for names or soliciting aid for acts of contemplated violence. If Shorgosh was part of a larger plot, directed by anarchist groups or agents of some state, he went to his grave without talking. After his execution, his body was dissolved in sulfuric acid to remove all trace of him from this world. At the time of Theodore Roosevelt's nomination to the vice presidency, a position he'd been given in part to keep him out of the way, Senator Mark Hanna angrily declared, Don't any of you realise that there's only one life between this madman and the presidency? That possibility had now become a reality, and the madman sat in the Oval Office. There's a lot to say about Roosevelt's progressive platform. As anti-imperialists were quick to point out at the time, outward expansion cannot but change the nature of a country. The empire invariably turns inwards. I'm going to leave this aspect alone for now, however. I'll review it around 1912, at the end of Roosevelt's political career. Over this episode and the next, I'll look at the two most important imperial actions of his presidency, in Panama and Japan. After the conclusion of the Sengoku, or Warring States period, around 1615, Japan entered about a 250-year period of relative peace and stability. This was also a period of isolation, with the Japanese people forbidden from travelling abroad and foreigners banned from the country. Only a small number of Dutch ships were given access to trade. The shogunate had become suspicious of European intentions and of Christianity's role as a tool of empire and moved to suppress the religion. In the 1820s, a Japanese scholar wrote, The European powers endeavour to attack all nations in the world. The wicked doctrine of Jesus is an aid in this endeavour. Under the pretext of trade or whatever, they approach and become friendly with people in all areas, secretly probing to see which countries are strong and which are weak. If a nation's defences are weak, they will seize it by force, but if there are no weaknesses to pounce on, they take it over by leading people's minds astray with the wicked doctrine of Christianity. After an uprising by persecuted Christians in 1637, Japan began its 250-year isolation, and between 1790 and 1853, the Japanese had turned away at least 20 visiting United States vessels. By the 1840s, Americans were keen to use Japan as a coaling station, a stopping-off point for the major prize, the markets of China. US ships could sail from California to Hawaii, but not make the remainder of the distance to Japan. Expansionists of that time faced a problem. The US Declaration of Independence stated that each nation had the right to determine its interactions with other nations. This was philosophically overcome by thinking of the Japanese as being akin to the Native Americans in their level of development, living outside the law of nations and not knowing what was good for them. In 1853, Commodore Matthew Perry sailed into Tokyo Harbour and demanded Japan open its ports to American ships. If they refused, Perry threatened instantaneous war and told them 100 American ships would attack within 20 days. Although I'm not sure how they read them, 
Perry gave the Japanese two books on the recent war with Mexico, emphasising his personal role in the amphibious assault on that country. Under further threat of gunships, Japanese leaders signed the United States-Japan Treaty of Amnity and Commerce in 1858. In 1861, Russia briefly invaded the island of Tsushima, located between Japan and Korea. They were only evicted with British assistance. The Western powers imposed what became known as the Unequal Treaties on Japan. These stipulated that Japan must allow citizens of these countries to visit or reside on Japanese territory and must not levy tariffs on their imports or try them in Japanese courts. Over the following two years, the British and US navies shelled civilians to discipline the Japanese for firing on their ships. The Japanese isolationist strategy, which had been successful at preventing the kind of imperial conquest so many other countries had suffered, had now completely backfired. It had left the Japanese 200 years behind Europe and the USA technologically, totally unable to defend themselves. They saw the fate of China, India, Indonesia and Indochina, all falling to European imperial powers. Certain Japanese came to see that radical action was necessary if they were to stand any chance of evading the same fate. Dissatisfaction of this situation led to a brief civil war in which the 250-year Tokugawa shogunate was overthrown, replaced by a restoration of the emperor to a place of prominent power. This is known as the Meiji Restoration, Meiji meaning enlightened rule. If you've seen the film The Last Samurai, this is what the scene of men with swords on horseback being cut down by gatling guns are based upon. It was a meeting of two entirely different worlds. Although the revolutionaries were incited by the intrusion of foreigners into Japan, they quickly realised they had no way of expelling them and made an about turn in tactics. Rather ingeniously, they fully embraced not only Western technology, which would have been understandable, but also Western cultural practices too. The Meiji government repudiated violence against foreigners, and lifted the centuries-old ban on Christianity. It introduced railways, telegraph lines, a universal education system, and hired hundreds of advisors from Western nations with expertise in such fields as mining, banking, law, military affairs and transportation. The Japanese adopted the Gregorian calendar and Western fashions and hairstyles. The tactical reason for this was the Japanese coming to understand how Westerners saw the world in terms of racial and civilizational hierarchies. They sought to stave off colonization by presenting themselves as Westerners in the East, to be adopted as honorary Aryans. One leading advocate of westernization was the popular writer Fukuzawa Yukichi, who today appears on the 10,000 Japanese yen note. He wrote that, We cannot wait for neighbouring countries to become enlightened and unite to make Asia strong. We must rather break out of formation and join the civilised countries of the West on the path of progress. The Japanese leadership also saw the need to reform religion, turning Shintoism into a state court and declaring the emperor to be a living god. A substantial portion of the state budget was dedicated to enshrining this cult into the public mind, with schools being used as centres to indoctrinate the youth. 
As an aside, there is a comparison here to what is going on in Britain at the same time. There's a perception in the United Kingdom that royal weddings and coronations are majestic and timeless ceremonies, stretching back for thousands of years. In reality, they are an invention of the 19th century, a way to endear royalty to the public after an upswell of republican sentiment upon the demise of the debauched and unpopular monarch George IV. In the 1870s, with Japanese students studying in American universities, some US expansionists started to see Japan as a potential imperial partner, a proxy force through which they could extend greater influence into East Asia. In 1871, Okinawan sailors heading for China were blown off course onto the island of Taiwan. In what became known as the Mudan Incident, 54 of the 66 who made it to shore were massacred by Taiwanese natives. Initially, the Taiwanese provided hospitality, and it's not entirely clear why the massacres occurred. There are actually reconciliation efforts between the two islands going on to this day. Okinawa and the wider Ryukyu Island chain, linking Japan with Taiwan, were over the following eight years annexed by Japan. The Japanese followed a similar course to the Americans in Hawaii and Puerto Rico, attempting to eliminate the Ryukyuan language, culture, and religion. Public education was introduced that permitted only the use of standard Japanese, while shaming students who used their own language by forcing them to wear plaques around their neck. The US minister to Japan, Charles DeLong, suggested that the Japanese dispatch a military expedition to discipline the Taiwanese and lay the groundwork for a takeover of the island nation. Minister DeLong assured the Japanese that the United States was partial to its friends who desired to occupy such territory for the purposes of expansion. The Japanese found an advisor in Civil War veteran Charles Legendry. Legendry had served as a US diplomat in China and had tried and failed to encourage the Chinese to invade Taiwan and civilize its tribal inhabitants. He now saw another opportunity with the Japanese, who willingly bought his military expertise. Legendre hoped to become governor of the island, and wrote to a friend in the United States that he took the job after, It was proved to me that, in doing so, I was but aiding in the carrying out of certain views which our government looked upon with extreme favour. Legendre proposed the Japanese adopt a Monroe Doctrine for Asia. In 1823, President James Monroe had declared that only the United States could meddle in the Americas. The US would view European actions in the Western Hemisphere as aggression, requiring military intervention. The Gendry recommended the Japanese pacify and civilize the Taiwanese if possible, and if not, exterminate them, or otherwise deal with them as the United States and England have dealt with the barbarians. The Japanese created a Bureau of Savage Affairs and incorporated new Western words like coroni, colony, into the Japanese language. Japanese newspapers authorized the Taiwanese aborigines, calling them cruel and inhuman, and spoke of Japan's responsibility to civilize the savages. In early May of 1873, Japan invaded Taiwan with US military advisors supporting the operation. Within two months, the Taiwanese submitted to the Japanese military force. Instead of holding the island as a colony, however, fearful of provoking war with China, Japan withdrew after extorting an indemnity of around 18 tons of silver. 
When Japan and China did go to war some 20 years later, Japan emerged with Taiwan as a colony. This could be said to be the start of the problems which exist with Taiwan today, as one of the hot points that could potentially spark a nuclear war. This might sound strange today, as China is supposed to be taking over the world any minute now, but at the turn of the 20th century, Theodore Roosevelt did not see the Chinese as a future world power. This in spite of the country's size, historical civilization, and immense population. He believed China would be contested between the Anglo-Saxon and the Slav, in a great battle for civilization. It was imperative then that the Russians did not gain a foothold in China, something they had a massive geographic advantage to do. At the same time, the Japanese felt the Russian bear breathing down their necks. They had ceded territory back to China at the insistence of European powers, only to watch Russia come in and acquire Port Arthur through a 25-year lease from the Chinese. If Russia occupied the eastern Chinese province of Manchuria, then moved down into Korea, it would become the central player in East Asia, blocking any further Japanese imperial ambitions. On the far side of the world, British imperialists also wished to prevent Russia's march into Manchuria. They had other concerns with the Russian menace, too. For 20 years, they had been at loggerheads over territorial claims in Iran, Afghanistan, and China. The British feared that Russia would one day try to take India off them, and they knew they did not have the troop numbers to stop them. In 1902, Britain and Japan signed the Anglo-Japanese Treaty, which stated that if any nation became allied with Russia during a war with Japan, Britain would enter the war on Japan's side. This was actually controversial and caused debates in Parliament, as Britain had traditionally avoided entangling alliances. A series of rebellions across the empire, however, caused British imperialists to seek out new strategies. British shipyards also supplied the Japanese with its navy, and when war broke out, the British pressured the French and German governments not to supply the Russians with coal for their fleet. While such treaties were controversial in the British Parliament, at this time it would have been impossible for a US president to get any such agreement past the Senate. Theodore Roosevelt therefore engaged in secret diplomacy, making handshake-style agreements with the Japanese. Seeing the Japanese as embodying Anglo-Saxon values, he also encouraged them to adopt the Monroe Doctrine for East Asia. Japan attacked the Russian fleet in February of 1904, then moved to occupy Korea. Like the British, Roosevelt notified France and Germany that if they assisted Russia, he would promptly side with the Japanese and proceed to whatever length was necessary on her behalf. In May of 1905, Japan won a stunning naval victory. In spite of the perception that total victory was at hand, however, the war was bleeding the Japanese economy, whilst Russia had inexhaustible manpower to draw upon. Whilst the Russians couldn't win the war in the east, there was no possibility of Japanese soldiers marching on St. Petersburg. Not wanting to sue for peace directly, and thereby look weak in negotiations, the Japanese approached Roosevelt and asked him to go to the Russians on their behalf, without the Tsar knowing he was acting for them. This ultimately led to the signing of the Treaty of Portsmouth, for which Roosevelt would, ironically, receive a Nobel Peace Prize. Roosevelt initially supported Japanese demands that Russia pay the costs of the war, but ultimately pressured the Japanese to drop this condition. Russia simply recognised Korea as part of the Japanese sphere of influence 
and agreed to evacuate Manchuria. This led to substantial anti-American rioting in Tokyo. When Theodore Roosevelt's daughter, Alice, visited the country, she was advised to say that she was English. In 1882, the Korean King Gojong had signed a treaty with the United States which declared that there shall be perpetual peace and friendship between Korea and the United States. If a third power acted unjustly or oppressively with either country, the United States and Korea promised to exert their good offices on being informed of the case to bring about an amicable agreement, thus showing their friendly feelings. The king therefore assumed the United States would offer them some sort of protection against Japanese encroachment. 23 years later, wanting Japan to take Korea, Theodore Roosevelt ignored their pleas and turned over the US legation building. Roosevelt later justified his abandonment of the treaty by saying, The treaty rested on the false assumption that Korea could govern herself well. Korea was utterly impotent, either for self-government or self-defence. Japan thus laid claim to Korea as a protectorate in 1905, followed by full annexation in 1910, thus beginning its imperial strides onto the Asian mainland. You might recall from the episode on Cuba, I pointed out the synchronicity that the last Spanish ship to be sunk by the US fleet was named Columbus. Well, Secretary of War William Howard Taft, who had been instrumental in the secret diplomacy of Japan, returned to the United States on a ship called Korea, named after the country whose existence he had just terminated. Japan set out to suppress many traditional Korean customs, including the language itself. The occupation lasted until 1945 and set up the conditions by which Korea remains a divided country to this day. After the First World War, Britain and France negotiated a series of secret treaties with the Japanese, transferring parts of China to them in return for Japanese recognition of European spheres of influence in Asia. Woodrow Wilson accepted Japan's control over a part of China in order to keep the Japanese in his proposed League of Nations. These are the events that put Japan and the United States on a collision course, resulting in the day of infamy and war. Japan transitioned from being a junior partner to an imperial rival in the Pacific. There are multiple perspectives worth exploring on why the United States and Japan ultimately went to war. There is of course the question of Pearl Harbor and whether the US military had advanced knowledge of the attacks or not. I'm going to have to content myself with having covered this early part of the history today and return to those questions at a later point. My purpose here has not been to diminish the blame of Japanese imperialists for the arising of the Japanese Empire. Rather, it is to demonstrate the role that British and American actions, or better to say, British and Roosevelt actions, played in bringing it about. After World War II, Japan ended up being something less than a junior partner, with the islands being home to more US military bases than anywhere else in the world. Ironically, a disproportionate number of those bases are on the island of Okinawa, not historically a part of Japan, but annexed with American encouragement. There is certainly a sense in which the American occupation has been continuous since 1945. Thank you for listening. In this episode, I've overwhelmingly drawn on James Bradley's book, The Imperial Cruise. I haven't actually mentioned what The Imperial Cruise was, 
So if you want to know, check out his book. It goes into vastly more detail on this whole period. I've also drawn somewhat on Jerry Doherty and Jim McGregor's Hidden History, The Secret Origins of the First World War, and Chalmers Johnson's The Sorrows of Empire. Next time, I'll be looking at another major incident in the Roosevelt presidency, the creation of Panama and construction of its canal.